If we haven't met yet, my name is John Boyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, and I'm just so delighted to be able to be in worship with you this morning. My family and I normally worship at the Boulder campus, um, and I've, I don't think I've been out here on a Sunday morning since the Thornton campus is officially launched. I was supposed to be out here in March, and then we had that giant snowstorm, and we had to cancel church, so I was super disappointed to not be able to be here, but I'm happy to be here today. Calvary has been a really important part of my life for more than 20 years. It was 1999, my freshman year at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and my roommate, best friend Jake, told me about this cool church that had a new pastor in Boulder, this young guy named Pastor Tom Shirk. And he asked me if I wanted to check out church with him one of the first Sundays uh, we were in town in Boulder, and uh, we attended Calvary all throughout college, and it was so important for me spiritually as a college student to be a part of Calvary, a place that faithfully opened the Word of God where I saw people bring their Bibles into church and study them deeply, and I had no idea what kind of impact it would have on my life. I met my wife, Lindsay, at Calvary. She also started attending uh, the church when she was a freshman at CU, and we started dating shortly after I graduated. Um, here's a picture of our family. We have three kids. McKenna, our oldest, will be 13 in two weeks, which is crazy. Uh, Cooper uh, will be 10, or is 10, just turned 10 in April, and our youngest, Beckett, uh, is six. And then, of course, we have our COVID puppy, Sydney, who... Um, we lost our minds like many people did, like a week after we had been locked down and decided we needed to get a dog to add to the craziness of our family, um, which has been a lot of fun. But we've raised our kids at Calvary. I joined staff shortly after I graduated from CU while Lindsay and I were still dating. We um, got married at Calvary. Pastor Tom married us at the Boulder campus, and uh, it's been such an important part of our family life to be a part of our church. And I've loved over the last 17 years to watch our church grow in so many different ways. Watching the launching of the Erie campus and watching the beautiful way that God orchestrated this campus to come together here in Thornton. And so I'm so happy to be here with you today. I had no idea that when my friend Jake invited me to church that answering that question would literally change the course of my life. I'd meet my would uh, find a job, I would discover my calling, and I would find a place that would be home for me. It ends up that that's one of the most important questions that I've ever answered. There are so many important questions that we answer in our lives, like, will you take the job? Do you want to buy this house? Maybe you don't know it at the time, but when he asked you, will you have dinner with me, that was a really important question because it eventually led to, will you marry me? I wonder how many of you have answered this question recently or at all. Do you know how fast you were going back there? <laughs> or maybe a more serious question, like, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I think the most important question any of us can answer is this one. Who is Jesus? Now, I don't know if you feel like that's an important question for you to answer, I don't know whether or not it's been a question that you've considered in your life, but I would like to suggest that this is the most important question that any of us will ever answer. And there's lots of different ways that people answer it. You might know some of them. I know people who would just describe Jesus as an important historical figure. Some people would say, well, he was a great moral teacher. There's a lot we could learn from him. 
Some would even describe him as a world-changing social reformer, that once Jesus came and taught and the way that he lived his life fundamentally changed the course of human history. Some people and some faiths would even describe Jesus as a great gifted prophet of God, but they might stop short there. This is a question that people have been asking since Jesus walked the earth. His disciples questioned exactly who he was, and some of them it took a little bit longer to determine who exactly is this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And this was an important question in the early church. One of the early churches, which was in a city called Colossae, struggled with this question as they began meeting together as a fellowship. Because there were people who became a part of the early church of the Colossians who were confused about how to properly answer this question. Some of them thought that actually in order to experience the true gift of salvation, you needed a little bit more than Jesus. We don't know exactly what they thought or what they were teaching, but Paul wrote a letter to this early church to help them be very clear about how to answer this question correctly. Who is Jesus? It was so important to him that he wrote this letter. And in the five verses that Kathy read for us earlier, six verses actually, I think the Apostle Paul gives us one of the most important and beautiful answers to this question that's found anywhere. And it's a fascinating one for him to answer in the way that he does, because if you know the story of Paul, Paul didn't exactly like Jesus at the very beginning. Paul was an enemy of Jesus. He hated him and his purposes, and he tried to stop the spread of the early church, so much so that he approved of the execution of early Christians. But he had this life-changing encounter with Jesus on the road where Jesus revealed the true reality of who he was to Paul, and it changed his life, and in many ways changed the world, because Paul has written to us some of the most important words for us to understand throughout his letters about who Jesus is. But I think these six verses are some of the verses that we should have on repeat in our life, that we think about a summer playlist And these are scriptures that we should know, that we should be able to be reminded of and remember. So if you have your Bible, will you open it with me to Colossians chapter 1? We're going to begin in verse 18. Kathy read for us 15, 16, and 17 before she got to 18. Those three verses, I think, describe Jesus in a particular way. I think those verses Paul describes Jesus as the king of creation. Did you see that? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then he describes four ways in which Jesus reigns and rules as the king of creation. First, as the designer of creation. It was Jesus's idea to create all things in eternity past with the Trinity. And he is the builder of creation. All things were made through him. And he is the owner of creation. All things were made for him. And he also is the sustainer of creation. In him, all things hold together. And then in verse 18, the focus for Paul about who Jesus is shifts for us. And I think if those first three verses are about Jesus as the king of creation, I think these next three verses, the ones we're going to look at together, are all about Jesus as the king of salvation, as the one who begins salvation, as the author of salvation, as the award of salvation, the free gift of God to us and as the agent of salvation, the one through whom salvation is accomplished. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, begins by Paul saying that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. 
This picture that Paul uses to describe Jesus as the head of the body helps us understand his purpose in the church. When we think about our heads, think about it physically, our heads are above the rest of the body, right? Our heads have authority over our bodies. They sort of direct what happens with our arms and our legs and our eyes and all of our different parts of our body. And so too, Jesus directs what happens in the life of the church. He is its life source. All power comes from Jesus because he is the head of the body. This is a common metaphor that Paul uses throughout his writings to describe the church. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, Now you, the people of God, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So this is the way that Paul explains the church and its relationship to Jesus. And I think we see here that just as our bodies are totally dependent upon our heads, I don't want to be grotesque, but if you don't have a head, there's not, the, not a lot that's going to go on with your body, right? So too, the church is totally dependent upon Jesus. This is why we as a church body here at Calvary are totally committed to building Christ-centered communities because we want to be a church that's totally dependent upon Jesus. I'm just so delighted as I hear about the wonderful stories of what God's doing here at the Thornton campus, of the ways that so many of you are jumping in to serve, of the ways that you're helping in the community, the ways that you're meeting needs, the ways that you're loving each other, that you're gathering together in communities and keeping Jesus at the center. I'm so thankful for the staff team that's out here, for Zach and for Justin. Justin and Sarah and Lindsay and I were in a life group together at the Boulder campus like, I don't even know how long ago. It was probably 10 years ago. And it's so fun to see Zach and Justin and Matthew and Dakota and Angie and this whole team lead so well here and all of you to lead too. And this is the most important thing about us, my friends, that we are Christ-centered. Calvary's existed for a long time at the Boulder campus, 132 years. And this is something I deeply appreciate about our, our church, that Throughout, I mean, that's 1889 when we began. There's a lot of world history that has occurred in 132 years, but we have been unwavering in our commitment to be totally dependent upon Jesus, to be Christ-centered. That's what Calvary has always been known for. And God has blessed us in 132 years. No church splits, just a beautiful unity amongst us. We haven't always agreed about everything. We haven't, you know, we're not a perfect church, but we have remained Christ-centered. Because Jesus is the head of this body and of the global church. I think churches struggle in some ways throughout history and today when they lose their dependence upon Jesus. Some churches subtly drift towards pleasing people rather than being totally dependent upon Jesus. You can understand why churches would do that because we love people. We want people to feel welcomed. We want them to feel affirmed. We want them to be a part of our fellowship, and when the opinions of people matter to us more than Jesus and his opinions and what he tells us about who we are and what it means for us to be a part of a church, we, we drift from that commitment. And that could happen here. We pray it doesn't, but that's sort of our collective responsibility that in this season, we hold fast to being Christ-centered. Many churches struggle with chasing cool you know, they want to be hip and relevant and look outside what's happening in the world and how can we be more like that so that people will feel more comfortable here. Good motives. But when, when that becomes more important than the centrality of Jesus, the church drifts. 
And oftentimes, throughout history, even in the church of the Colossians, there's a tendency where churches who lose their dependence upon Jesus then compromise the truth. And that was Paul's concern with the Colossians, that they would be very clear about who Jesus is, that they would be totally dependent upon him as the head, the power source, the life source, the authority figure, the top of the org chart, so that they would never lose their dependence upon Jesus because he is the head of the body the church. And because the true church is totally dependent upon Jesus, we are interconnected with him, just as our bodies are interconnected with our heads, which means that Jesus is not disconnected from what happens in the lives of his people, not disinterested in what happens in the life of his church, not dispassionate about the pains and sorrows that we all experience because he is a part of the church. He is the head of this body. In fact, Paul has an amazing description of his encounter with Jesus on the road when he was converted from a hater of Jesus to a lover of Jesus. In Acts 22, verse 7, Paul describes what happened when Jesus appeared to him. Paul says, And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, that was his Roman name, Why are you persecuting me? Now that's an amazing statement from Jesus. Because there's, there's no evidence that we have historically that Paul ever actually met the man, Jesus of Nazareth. This encounter with Jesus, with the Apostle Paul, happened after Jesus had died, gone back to heaven, been raised from the dead, returned to heaven. He appeared to him after that. And yet, Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? The evidence we have is that Paul was persecuting the people of God who made up the church, and yet Jesus takes it personally. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus said. He is so deeply connected to his people and to his church that when Jesus, or when, when his people suffer, Jesus suffers. When you're persecuted, look who else is persecuted. Jesus himself is persecuted when you are, which means we're never alone. Jesus is with us because he is the head of the body, the church. Now, what is the church? Is it a place that we go to? Is it a large organization? I mean, some churches, you know, today are massive, multi-million dollar enterprises. So is a church a place or is a church best described as a people? In Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the church connected to Jesus under his authority. So the question of church is not really a question of where, but who. Who am I with in my church? Who am I connected to because I am a part of this body? And we're going to see this unfold as we look at these remaining verses, but the church is made up of the people of God who have been redeemed by the head of the body, Jesus. Those who have been saved by him, those who have experienced salvation, who have surrendered to him as king and who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on in uh, the next verse to say, actually continuing in, in verse 18, that he is the beginning, Jesus is. He is the beginning of the church. I look at the very first phrase of verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, as sort of the heading over the remaining part, uh, the remaining verses that follow. And so Jesus is 
the beginning of the church. It all begins with him. When you look at verses 15, 16, and 17 of Colossians chapter 1, you see that all creation belongs to him, that Jesus has authority over all of it because he is the king of salvation. But in these verses, we see that the church and the new creation all begins with Jesus. So creation belongs to him, and the new creation begins with him because Jesus is the author of salvation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul describes this new creation that begins with Jesus when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the new creation that begins with Jesus. He is the beginning. In Revelation 21.5, at the very beginning of that verse, it says, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This is a picture of what Jesus will do at the end of time. That he will take creation, who he has total authority over, and he will recreate it. He will make all things new. And he can do that because he is the king of creation. And because the church begins with him. So the church was not started by a group of people who shared a common interest. It wasn't just incorporated by a board of directors. It wasn't begun by a group of investors who saw a tremendous upside. No, this church begins with Jesus. It was his idea to save a people from himself, just like it was his idea to begin creation. In eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit wanted to share their love that was shared within the Trinity with created beings. And so they created the world and they made a covenant together to redeem a people for themselves who would be saved by the Son of God so that they could experience the glory of God, so they could experience the love that was shared amongst the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we could be redeemed and saved and give glory to God because of what He has accomplished through His Son. And it's all possible because, Paul says, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, if you were paying attention when Kathy read the verses earlier, you notice that this word firstborn is used twice by the Apostle Paul. The first time it's used, when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that has tripped some people up because it sounds like Jesus is a created being, the firstborn of all creation. In fact, if you have friends, or maybe they've knocked on your door who are Jehovah's Witnesses, This is one of their tenets, one of their heresies, that they believe Jesus is a created being, and they might point to this verse. If that ever happens, you might include this verse from Colossians 1.18 that is just a few verses later that says he is the firstborn from the dead. Because what Paul is not saying is that this is a sequence of events, like we might think of, oh, Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. That's what, what they think. Oh, that's a sequence of events. When you read this verse, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, if you thought it was a sequence of events, that would mean Jesus maybe is the first who was raised from the dead. But was he? No. Think about the people that Jesus raised from the dead in his own ministry. He raised Lazarus from the dead, right? He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raised the widow's son from the dead. In fact, if you know the Old Testament history, you know that Elisha raised a young boy from the dead. So Jesus was not the firstborn sequentially from the dead. No, this word firstborn is not a sequence of events, but it's a title given, in fact, what goes on to say that in everything he might be preeminent. 
It's a title of preeminence. Preeminence is a big word, but it essentially means that he is over all things, that he, is, that, that he would have first place in everything. Just like the firstborn in an ancient family would inherit all things, that's what Paul means when he says the firstborn from creation. Firstborn was a title that was given to the nation of Israel, that, they, uh, that Israel was described in the Old Testament as God's firstborn son. Now, was the nation of Israel the first nation on the earth? No. It was started later. It's not a sequence of events. It's a title that's given to describe who Jesus is, that he has first place in everything. First place over creation, and in this case, first place over salvation. Now, the difference between Jesus and those other people that were raised from the dead is what eventually happened to Lazarus. Lazarus eventually died. He was raised from the dead, but he would die again. Same with Jairus' daughter. Same with the young boy that Elisha raised. All of those people who were resurrected, and in fact, Peter and Paul in the book of Acts raised people from the dead, but those people eventually died, but not Jesus. Jesus was raised on the third day to new life, never to die again. And so he receives the title, the firstborn from the dead. I think this comparison of the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from the dead is an important one for us to keep in mind. Because as beautiful and amazing as creation is, it ultimately finds its end in death. We have some beautiful flowers in our backyard. Some of my favorites are peonies. About a month ago, our peonies were absolutely spectacular. And today, all those beautiful blossoms are gone. Dead. Now, the peony bush will remain green until sometime this fall. And surely by the winter, it will be completely dead. And I'll have to cut it off. And then next summer, it'll rise again. <laughs> but creation ultimately finds its end in death. We all find our end in death. But Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, conquered death. He is the one who never died again. And because he is the firstborn from the dead, Paul says, in everything he might be preeminent. He might have first place in everything. So he has no rivals. He has no equals. He is matchless and incomparable because he has first place in everything. And this is one of our hopes that we cling to as the people of God. That because Jesus conquered death, if we place our faith in him, we too have confidence that we will conquer death. That's his promise to us. Who else would we put our faith in than someone who has physically conquered death and risen again? There is no God like Jesus who has been raised from the dead and lives forevermore in heaven. He is worth putting our faith and our hope and our trust in because he's conquered death and he has first place in everything. You know, in less than a month, the Olympics are supposed to happen in Japan. It, it seems touch and go whether or not it's going to occur, but over the last couple of weeks, we've been having Olympic trials to get our Olympic team ready. And just a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. Olympic trials for track and field occurred. And this young man, Ryan Crosser, broke a long-standing world record in the shot put. He threw a shot put 76 feet at an eight inches. That's a 16 pound ball of metal that he hurled that far. It like crushed the previously held uh, world record by 10 inches. And I think that world record had been held for 21 years. A couple years ago, Ryan broke the indoor shot putting world record as well. 
So Ryan Crosser is the preeminent shot putter in the world. He holds all the world records in that event. I don't know what kind of marketable skill that is. I'm certain just looking at him that he's pretty strong. I'm sure he can put that to use, but aside from throwing that metal ball, I'm not sure how else he can apply that skill, but he is the preeminent shot putter. That's an incredible accomplishment. But I think we all can agree that's a fair, fairly narrow lane of preeminence. And yet Paul says that Jesus has preeminence in everything. Absolutely everything. Jesus has first place. So does Jesus have first place in your life? In every category of your life. Are there any nooks or crannies of your life that you feel like are off limits to Jesus? The one who Paul describes as being preeminent? Are there any places that you haven't yet fully surrendered your life to Jesus that you would say, okay, Jesus, I, I've got this. I've got my work life. I've got my marriage life. I've got my private life all on my own. I've got my relationship with my friends, or this is just something I do to blow off steam. Or does Jesus have preeminence in every single category of your life? Have you fully surrendered your life to Him as the King of creation, as the King of salvation? Have you said to Him, Jesus, I want you to have first place in everything, in my work, in my family, in my relationships, in my friendships, in the time I spend by myself, in the way I recreate, in the ways I spend my money, in all ways, Jesus, I want you to have first place in my life. I don't know about you, but I, I find sometimes it's just easier for me to stay angry at a person rather than surrendering that experience to Jesus. Like it just feels better that I feel a little bit justified because they wronged me or they did something I didn't want them to do, and I have to remind myself, okay, Jesus, what, what have you said to me about harboring anger in my heart towards another person? I surrender that to you. Or the problems that I face at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, for me, at 2 in the morning, the same problem explodes into a crisis. I just feel like, I, I, I don't know what to do. And those are times when I have to remind myself, Jesus, you have first place over this problem that seems unsolvable right now, that I'm not going to be able to solve while I'm lying here in bed, tossing and turning, but I surrender it to you, and I put it under your authority. And I ask for your help because it's, it seems impossible right now. So I think the first way that Paul helps us understand Jesus as the king of salvation is that Jesus is the unequaled author of it. There is no one like him. It was his idea. And he is matchless, preeminent, the unequaled author of salvation. Paul goes on to describe him as the unearned award of salvation. In verse 19, Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now this word dwell, we can use to mean a lot of different things. My family and I went camping a couple weeks ago, and we stayed in a tent. That was our temporary dwelling. We were all happy when we got home and got to sleep in our own bed. You know, similarly when you go to a hotel, you're happy to be in your own bed. I guess it depends on what kind of hotel you were staying in, but you like to be home. It's your permanent residence. That's the word that Paul is using to describe 
for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's a permanent residence. This verse should remind us of Christmas. For unto us a child is given, unto us a Savior is born. The fullness of God dwelled in the man, even in the baby Jesus of Nazareth. This is an idea of the incarnation. That the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now this is different than someone being filled up with God. You know, you think of a person who just has a really deep faith. And you might describe them that way. Oh gosh, they just seem so filled with the Holy Spirit. Totally filled up with God. You you think about some of the classic examples of Mother Teresa. Oh boy, she was just filled to the brim with God. Or Billy Graham, or even the Apostle Paul. That's not what Paul is saying here though. There's a difference between being filled with God and having the fullness of God dwell in you. That can only be said of Jesus. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. All of God's character traits, all of his attributes, his greatness, his goodness, his glory, all dwelled in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. This is one of many clear explanations in the scripture that Jesus is God himself, that he is not only fully man, but also fully God. In just a few verses, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, For in him the fullness of deity, another word for God, dwells bodily. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwells in his body. He is fully man and fully God. And this is important because Paul goes on in verse 20 to say, And through him to reconcile to himself all things. So if Jesus is the king of creation and it all belongs to him, Why do all things need to be reconciled through him? Because reconciliation is required. Because of the fallen state of the world, because all of creation will eventually find its end in death, reconciliation must occur because of our sin. Because we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul goes on in the next few verses, 21 through 23, to describe our state before we knew Jesus. Or if you don't yet know Jesus, this is actually... Paul's kind of harsh description of where you stand right now before Jesus. He says, you were once alienated and hostile to God. Doing evil in your minds. We're alienated and hostile to God because of our sin. And therefore, reconciliation is required. And because we're alienated or estranged, because we're hostile, enemies of God, God must intervene. And he must do something that we cannot do on our own. Because our hostility to God, our sin, our alienation from Him means that we cannot confidently stand in His presence. The sins that all of us have committed must be dealt with. The penalty for sin must be paid. And it could only be accomplished through the God-man, Jesus Christ. So the fullness of God in Christ has come into the world to save us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to God, to bring us back into harmony and restore our relationship with him. So who does the reconciling? Are we the ones who must reconcile ourselves to God? Does it ultimately depend on us? No, this verse says, Jesus reconciles to himself all things. He does the reconciling. Now you see that phrase, all things. Does this mean that everybody will be saved? 
If you just read this verse all by itself, you might think so. He will reconcile to himself all things. But if you know the words of Jesus, like in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Or this verse from Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. You know that it's an impossibility for us to think that this verse is saying that everyone will be saved. Now, this verse is simply describing that Jesus has the authority to reconcile to himself all things, and that anybody who is saved will be saved. So this verse is not a statement of of universal salvation. This verse is a statement of exclusive salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Now, you may think that you are beyond saving. That whatever's going on in your life or has occurred in your life would put you outside of God's ability to reconcile to himself. But I want you to notice in this exclusive claim that Jesus reconciles to himself all things. Anybody who is saved is saved by Jesus. All things can be saved by Jesus if you trust in him. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we Ask for God's mercy that is offered through Christ. And this is God's gift to us. And so I think this is the second point that Paul wants us to understand about Jesus as the king of salvation, that he is the unearned award. He is God's gift to us, freely given, the mercy of God in Christ for us. So have you received it? Have you received the free offer of reconciliation that is found in Jesus? If not, now could be the moment where you surrender your heart to him and say, Jesus, I no longer want to be alienated and hostile towards you. I want to receive this free gift, this unearned award of salvation that is found in you. I surrender my life to you here and now. So how is it accomplished? It's right at the end of verse 20. This happens through Jesus making peace by the blood of his cross. And so this is the third way that Jesus is the king of salvation. He is the unmatched agent. The way in which we are saved. Because of his work on the cross. Because of what he has accomplished. We can live forever with him. He has made peace between God and man by the blood of of his cross. It's not your job to make peace with God or to make peace with Jesus. Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. It's our job to acknowledge that that has occurred and to receive it as a gift and to acknowledge that there is no other way by which men and women might be saved than through the blood of Jesus Christ. And for us to believe that Jesus, the king of salvation, is the unequaled author of it the unearned award of it, and the unmatched agent of salvation. This prophecy in Isaiah 45, I think, takes together what we see in verses 15 through 20. The king of creation and the king of salvation, prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. 
I, the Lord, have created it. Created all things, created salvation. And the Lord in His mercy showers it down from heaven on us to receive the righteousness that can only be found in Jesus Christ, to receive the free gift of salvation that is found in the Son of God. So who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So if we ever face the question in our own hearts or in conversations with friends or family about who Jesus is, my hope is that these verses, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, will be on repeat in our minds and in our lives. That we will see Jesus as the King of creation and the King of salvation, worthy of praise and worship and glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for the gift of your Son. We are so thankful that you have created all things and that you have created us to know you, to be reconciled to you, to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I pray, Lord, for my friends here that they would be encouraged by the reminder of who Jesus is, that they would surrender their hearts and their lives completely and totally to the preeminent one, that he would have first place in their lives and in my life. Lord, we ask that Jesus would have first place in our church too, that by your mercy and grace, and strength, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would remain steadfastly committed to the gospel which has been proclaimed, that we would remain Christ-centered as a church, totally dependent upon you. We bring our needs to you, God. They are many. We ask for your help in every category of our life, for your peace and your help and your direction and your mercy to come. We pray this in the powerful name of the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Amen.